Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. I want to go to the first chapter of Matthew and read just a short passage of Scripture that I think summarizes Christmas for us as Christians. It says in the 18th verse, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and you have to pardon the wording there, because they were considered husband and wife being engaged And so uh, when he was tempted to file for divorcement, it wasn't because they were already married. It's because it would be a breaking of the engagement. So just understand the language that's being used here. Her husband was faithful to the law. He did not yet want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly, to break the engagement. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In other words, there's no scandal here. Don't worry about it, Joseph. She's pure. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now that's it. That's, that's really the Christmas story in a nutshell. And so I, I refer to this today as the event, the incarnation. God becoming flesh. Incarnation. What does it mean for us? What are the most important takeaway points for the incarnation? I will share these points with you today. Number one. I set forward to you that the incarnation is about revealing God to us. Now, throughout the history of God interacting with man, Adam and Eve had a good idea of what God was like. They walked with him. They fellowshiped with him in the garden. But after they were expelled from the garden, God's interaction with man was sporadic. You can think of examples when God spoke to the heathen, Abram, in the earth of the Chaldees, and inspired him, come follow me, I want to take you to a land that you will possess. Abram didn't know much about God. He knew he had the power to speak to him, but who is this being? What's he like? He didn't have much of a concept. God spoke to Noah to build an ark. He knew how to obey him, but he didn't know much about God. And so we go from one example to another in the Old Testament. People having encounters with God, but not really knowing a lot about him. He worked one-on-one through Pharaoh's adopted Hebrew son Moses to become the deliverer of Abraham's descendants out of Egyptian bondage. 
But Moses didn't know a lot about him. Not near as much as we came to know about him when Jesus became incarnate. So through the centuries, he spoke through kings, he spoke through prophets, and he called his people to holiness, but what is this God really like? So for 4,000 years, people didn't really understand everything about God. They wanted to know about God. And in the absence of this empirical evidence, humankind began to develop their own theories about what God was like. They had preconceived notions of what God would be like if they got to know him on a better level. Now the Jews had been led by Moses, who was led by God. They saw the physical manifestations of God's presence. They saw the pillar of cloud by day. They saw the pillar of fire by night. They saw the distant mountain that burned with fire. All of these things impressed them about what God might be like, but they still didn't know him very well. And then Israel got to the point where they wanted to be like other people. Although they were led by God through the wilderness, although he provided miraculously for them, although he was their king, he was their leader, he was their guide, he was all they needed, they got to the point where they said, that's not good enough for us. What we really want is a king so we can be like all the other nations around us. They have a king. All we have is God. So God said, have it your way. You've got me. Look at all that I've done for you. But you want a king? You can have a king. So they got a king, Saul. That didn't work out very well. So they got another king, David. That worked out better. But then the kingdom was divided under David. And there's had the kingdom of Israel, and they had the kingdom of Judea. And from that time forward, there were 20 kings over the king, uh, kingdom of Israel. Every one of those 20 kings were evil. Every single one of them. So how's this king thing working out for them? Under the kingdom of Judah, there were 20 kings. 12 out of the 20 were evil. There was only eight good kings. Now Israel's got a problem. How many of you have heard the concept Jews were looking for a Messiah. Of course you've heard that. That's very common in this, this story about the incarnation. It's what it was all about, Jesus coming to be their Messiah. How many of you know what Messiah means? It means king. So shortly after this experiment with having a king went sour for them, and they had this string of bad kings and more bad kings than good kings, then prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel begin to arise, and they begin to, in their writings, in, imply that someday God was going to send them a king, a Messiah. And they read the words of the prophets, and they begin to get hope. Right in the middle of all this stretch of all these bad kings, the prophets were holding up hope. You're going to have a king one of these days. He's going to come, and he's going to set things right. He's going to, to be your deliverer. So that's why they begin to hope for a Messiah, a king, because the prophets told them they could expect one of these days a king. Now, they, they figured out themselves that it wouldn't come through the line that was going down through the kingdom of Israel. Every one of them were failures. 
So they traced it back, and the prophets implied he would come through the line of David, one of the only really, really good kings that they, they respected and loved and remembered. So now they're putting together this picture that they can expect a king and they expect him to come through the line of David, and every time there was a king that came, they hoped this is the one. Twelve out of twenty times, it was very obvious that wasn't going to be the one. One eight good kings, they had hopes. Maybe this is the king that's going to deliver us. And it went all down through this line of kings and, until uh, finally around 500 years before Jesus Christ came, the, the, the throne fell apart, came down to, to uh, uh, Zedekiah, and he was the last king in, in the line of the Judean kings, in the line of David. And then after that, the, there just weren't any more kings. So for 500 years leading up to the time that Jesus came, they didn't have a king. They, this was a lost people. When Jesus came, they had a King Herod. He was a paper tiger. He was somebody that the Roman authorities had said, hey, you, you Jews, you like your kings, I'll just, I'll let him be king. But he had, had no real authority. He was just kind of a, a, a figurehead king. And he didn't by any means come close to being that king that they believed was going to be their Messiah. So entering into that world comes Jesus. He's born the king. What is the king? The king, he is the Messiah in the line of David. And the Jews have a hard time believing that he is going to be their king because it just so happens he also is purported to be the son of God. Now, they had a problem with that. They expected a king, but they didn't expect God to come be their king. And they couldn't put this together. This can't possibly be our king, and you can't possibly be the son of God. So in looking for the Messiah, this big surprise was God, as they're looking for the king that the prophets had all prophesied, God said, I got a plan. I'll be their king. They didn't want God to be their king. Now they're looking for a king. And when he shows up, it's God who says, surprise, it's me. And they're disappointed. They didn't want God to be their king. They didn't want him back then. They didn't want him now. So Jesus came. He is the Messiah. He is the king they've been looking for. But they, didn't, they had these, I told you, they had these preconceived ideas about what God's like, right? All through the centuries, they had, they had made their minds up. If we ever saw God, he would be like this. So here comes Jesus. He wasn't all what they thought God ought to be. Far from their imaginations. That this would be God? Are you kidding me? And the prophets indicated he would come from Bethlehem. <clears throat> they didn't believe their king would come from Bethlehem. The prophets indicated he would come as a, as a deliverer, but he wouldn't come on this big white stallion. He would come riding the foal of a donkey. And they said, that doesn't fit our concept of a king. Nothing made them believe this was their king. But the purpose of the incarnation was to reveal God to them in his full truth. This is God. And Jesus was the revelation of God to man. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He represents the Godhead. They couldn't deal with that. Now, 
just to kind of close this point out as I move to point number two, our problem many times is our preconceived notions of what God ought to be. And it causes us to miss God because we've got it in our mind what he ought to be, what he ought to do, what Christianity ought to be like, what the experience of following God ought to be. And whenever we, that, that, that fails to meet our expectations, we run the risk of missing what God has for us. You don't need a preconceived notion of God. You need to open up and accept him for who he is. Now, we still have preconceived notions of God today. It, much of the world today wants to believe God is love. That's what he want him to be. Aren't they going to be surprised when the sword of God's judgment falls on this world? Well, that wasn't what we thought God was at all. At all. God has revealed himself to be God, both a God of love, mercy, and judgment. The preconceived ideas have to go out. And in Matthew, it says, you'll call his name Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, Savior. But then Luke, uh, Matthew goes back and picks up the Old Testament scripture, which dovetails with this, where it said, the prophet said, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The purpose of the incarnation is let us catch a glimpse of God. Jesus was perfect. He wasn't a flawed character. He was absolutely perfect in every way. He didn't slip up. He didn't have a bad word once in a while. He didn't have a wrong thought once in a while. He didn't mistreat people and have to go back and apologize. He, 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 he was perfect. He was perfect. A glimpse of God that never had to back up and apologize. Never was caught in a lie because he didn't lie. It's a revelation of God. Point number two about the incarnation. The purpose of the incarnation was to provide a means of redemption. How many of you are saved today? I'm not asking you to raise your hand. I'm asking the rhetorical question. How many of you are saved today? Do you know what saved means? How many of you right now, you know for a fact, if you died tonight, you would go to heaven? How many of you know that for a fact? Now, if I ask how many of you want to, I would get a whole lot more people. Everybody wants to go to heaven. But how many of you know that you're going? And I would probably still get a lot of people, but when I get down to challenging you, tell me how you know. That's where a lot of people get lost. And they'll come up with something like this. Because my grandmother was a Christian. That doesn't get you there. Because I was baptized when I was an infant. That doesn't get you there. How do you know? If you die tonight... How do you know you're going to heaven? It all has to do with if you have accepted Jesus Christ as the incarnate Son of God, come down here, dwelt among men, died for you, rose again, and paid for your sins, and you say, I accept that as my sacrifice to make the record right between me and God. That's the way you get to heaven. I don't know if you've done that or not. If you haven't, I have a simple question. Why not. It's like even better than this. 
If I were to say to you, every one of you here today, I'm going to give you a new car before you go home. All you have, yeah, that'll get you excited. All you have to do is claim it. I've got something better for you. I said there is eternal life. You can, when you pass from this life, you can go to be in eternal life with Jesus Christ. Heaven. You can have that. That's better than a new car. It doesn't rust. Doesn't wear out. You never have to trade it in. It's eternally perfect. Yet, when you say, how many of you want eternal life? I'm not sure I want that. I don't know. I don't know. Why? It's the best gift that's ever been given to the world. Eternal life. Why not? Well, I can understand the arguments because I'm afraid I'll have to be a weird religious person and I'm going to have to give up doing the things I really enjoy doing. And I don't know if I want to do all of that. All right. I understand where you're coming from. Let's see how well that rationale and that argument works when this life is over and you've lived life the way you want to live it and you've done what you've wanted to do and you've enjoyed and you've drank from the cup of, of, of pleasure and happiness your entire life and you come to the end, you haven't give, given God the proper respect and the time of day and God says, depart from me, I don't even know who you are. Then how did that plan work out for you? I always put it in the perspective of this. It's not about what's happening in this life. It's about where you're going to spend eternity and doing everything in your power to ensure when this life is over, you're set for eternity. That's what it's really all about. That's what keeps me going. It gets hard trying to live the life that pleases God. It gets hard trying to follow him when the rest of the world wants to follow somebody else. But I have to keep it all about eternity. Keep that in mind. And I have to strive every day to say, my goal is to make it to heaven. And all the other things are nothing but distractions. Providing redemption. He'll bring forth a son. He'll call his name Jesus. He'll call his name Emmanuel. And he shall save his people from their sins. Now, of all the things that Matthew could have shared with us in that short little snippet of the incarnation, he picked this one thing to share. Not only is he going to come, and he's going to be your Messiah, he's going to be God with us, but he said that he, this is the one facet he wanted to know. He comes here to save you from your sins. Of all the things the angel could have shared, he thought that was the single most important bit of information to include in this brief message about your king is coming. He's coming to save you from your sins. Now, people who are captive know they need to be liberated. People who are in prison know they want to be outside the prison. People who are sick know they want to be well, people who are poor know they want to be lifted out of their poverty. People who are lost somehow don't know they need to be saved. How is it all these other people can assess their situation and say, I know what I need. I'm poor. I need some help. I'm sick. I need some help. I'm imprisoned. I need some help. Yet the person who is lost say, I'm okay. How is it that that escapes people? If you're lost, you need to be saved from your sins. Why? Because being lost 
Your sins will send you to hell. That's why you need this. You don't want that in your life. You must be saved. You must be born again. If you care about what happens after this life, you should care that Jesus came and took upon himself the form of a human to save you from your sins. Now, maybe there's some of you here today that you haven't become so jaded and so hardened to the sinful things that you have done that it actually bothers you. You actually live with some guilt. You actually are haunted by things that you have done in your life. And when you think about it, it just drives you crazy. And you don't want to think about what you did. It was so heinous. It was so vile. It was so hurtful. But you've been carrying it and carrying it and carrying it. I want to tell you, Jesus became God incarnate to save you from your sins. It can be resolved today. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how bad you've been. I don't care how deep it has been. Jesus came to save you, to forgive you, to clean the slate, and to give you a new start in life. Isn't that good news? The third thing the incarnation does is it begins the process of establishing God's kingdom. Now, Jesus had already established God's kingdom here when he came. This is not a futuristic hope. This kingdom is in a suspended state of what we call already is but not yet. It's kind of, kind of a, a, a conflict, isn't it? Already is but not yet. That means that he already established it, but it has not fully come into fruition yet. So the kingdom has been established. And the workers are already laboring in the kingdom. We bring people into the kingdom because it's already here. But it's not in complete operation yet until the king actually moves his headquarters back here. I am preparing for his arrival. I am looking for his arrival. Are you? He came the first time. He's gone away for a short while, but he's going to come again, and we're going to be faithful in the time of his temporary absence, waiting for his reappearing. He will return and he will demand an accounting for all that was done in his absence. We must be faithful because his kingdom's already been established. And the gospel message is nothing more complicated than this. Proclaiming the kingdom and the subsequent call for repentance. That's what the gospel message is. The kingdom is here. The king has been established. And you must repent and enter into the kingdom. That is the message. John the Baptist understood that. He said the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then he said what? Repent. Believe in the gospel. And when Jesus began his public ministry, his, this was his message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's right among you. See, our proclamation of the kingdom is that the future reign of Jesus is already in effect now. Listen closely to me. Our proclamation of the kingdom is that Jesus Christ today, right now, is king 
and he's Lord. Our message is not, oh, someday he's going to come back and be king. Our message is he is now king. He is now Lord. We're trying to tell the world. He is the king. Not going to be. He is during this Christmas season. One of the most notable songs over the many centuries associated with this season was, would be the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. Everybody is familiar with that. A predictable feature of this song, the Hallelujah Chorus. And when Handel f- debuted this, and King George II saw the debut, the, the, the story goes that he was so impressed by the power that was presented as the choir lifted up, <clears throat> King of kings, hallelujah, hallelujah, Lord of lords, the king stood. And everybody else says, well, the king is standing. We might as well stand. So supposedly we've been standing ever since. Now, I don't give a flip what George did. I don't care if he stood or didn't stand. I'm not even sure that's true. But I'll tell you this. When they begin to sing, King of Kings, hallelujah, hallelujah, I stand because I know who the king is. I can't help it. Singing out with all that power and majesty. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. I just stand on my feet. Yes, he is. Because the incarnation is to establish the fact he is the king. Not someday not going to be. He already is. And he shall reign forever. And forever. Worship team, would you come?